Maxwell presents Chords. Excellent. Kyle Timon. how the fuck are you? I'm feeling good. <laughs> it was nice running into you the other day. Yeah, man. Oh, I couldn't believe my eyes. The last time I saw you in the flesh, it was back in the Basque country, San Sebastian, the surf film festival, Sancho Rodriguez's brainchild. And, uh, man, I've got to say, actually, Sancho, fucking shout out to Sancho. That guy was like a pivotal figure in my life. Like before the, the surf film festival uh, that we were at, I spent a couple of weeks on his couch once. Um, I feel like it was like a few years earlier. And Sancho was this Basque, intrepid, core lord, cone fiend, hell man. You know, it was like traipsing through the ments in the 90s, getting fucking dengue and fucking dysentery and whatever else the jungle can throw at you. <laughs> and uh, with the King Millennium Back Boys. Back the ments were dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, they're still dangerous if you... If you blow too many out there, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Fucking skinned at that joint. Yeah, San Sebastian. That's a, a cool spot, man. They were premiering the the Ramon Navarro film, The Fisherman's Son, and I yes. was doing a little tour with the Patagonia crew. Yep, Cole uh, Christensen was there. Cole Christensen was there. One of the goats. One, One of the, the goats. All time goats, man. He's got. I reckon he has the the goat non make it cloud break. I think that that tube is like almost stands alone. Yeah, it's in it. I don't know if there's. It's been better, but it's a. It kind of. You giving it. You, you, he's also you backing the, it. He's all fuck yeah. And he's also the Hunter S. Thompson of yeah, surfing. Dude. I I I have a great Cole story. I was in. I was on the North Shore, and I hit up Cole, and I was like, Hey, like, what's up, Cole? Like, you know, I, I know you. <laughs> you're you're a Hawaiian. Are you gonna be cool to me while I'm in Hawaii? <laughs> and he's like, Oh yeah, Kyle. What's up? Let's go surf this spot. I'm like, cool, right on. He shows up at my little, little spot, and uh, he, he's like, take this business card out of my glove box. And I'm like, all right. So I take the business card out, and he's like, peel off a corner of the business card. And it, and it has a coal business card on it. Yep. And uh, he said, peel off the corner of the business card and put it, in your, put it on your tongue. <laughs> no. He dipped his business cards in Lysergic? Are you kidding me? And we, wow. We uh, commenced to... To have a great LSD surf sesh at um, at a wave on the North Shore, and and as we're we're walking through this this path um, that leads to this cool little zone, there's a a yoga class of women on surfboards, and they're doing like a, a stand up paddle yoga surf class in flat water because to paddle out to this wave we were going to like it's flat water in this in this little area and then you go out and they're in line like almost kind of like um like peril uh perpendicular to the beach and cole and i look at each other like you thinking what i'm thinking yeah and we just paddle through this line of women doing yoga (laughs) on the beach and out to the fucking most fun little rippable two to three foot waves and uh it was a, uh, an LSD trip I will never forget. Man, you, that's the thing about LSD trips. You never forget them. I can tell you every stinking detail of every time I've taken a significant dose of psychedelics. And, and that's you know, something to be said for me. Having, you know, I mean, I've had my fucking head punched in by so many different cultures of people back in Australia. And uh, yeah, to the tune of you know, 12 to 15 concussions as people listen to this show know well. And uh, my short-term memory is a little bit banged up, but never... 
when I take psychedelics, man, it's crazy. It creates this neural circuitry that just leaves the most vivid imprints of every little fucking thing that happened in that journey. Cole, also, uh, yeah, when I met him, I met him on his avocado farm there at Wailua, I believe. Uh, and uh, that's, he was running like a, a wolfing avocado farm. Is yeah, that wolfing. Right? So what is it? The willing worker. It's it's basically a a way for, for you to get, stay on a farm if you're willing to work. Right. And uh, there was a a yoga session going down, and yes, of you know, he offered me the obligatory dose of liquid LSD. I, I said no at the time, but you know, kind of regret that now. And uh, as it happened, I, I bumped into him again at the Steel Pulse concert in Waikiki. Uh, you know, Steel Pulse. You yeah, of familiar? course, of course, you've got to be familiar with Steel Pulse. Um, and yeah, and and since then, yeah, just uh, how to. Just the correspondences here and there with Cole, but one of the great stories he told me, and this was a story that was published in, uh, fuck, I can't remember who I wrote it for. It might have been the Surface Journal or Tracks Magazine, but Cole's first trip outside of Hawaii, you probably know this, was to uh, Rapa Nui. Oh, yeah. AKA Easter Island, AKA the most isolated island in the world, 5,000 kilometers off the coast of Chile in the Pacific. Um, and he went there in the, fuck man, it was a long time ago. He was like 18 years old and you know, there's fuck all cars on the island. And so you're actually riding horses around from surf break to surf break. The people are like Polynesian. I think it's like a kind of a mix of, well, they have the big stone statues. That's what it's famous for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's famous for the stone statues and and also the the desertification of an island. So it, the the history goes that the people cut down all the trees and right. destroyed all their resources on this island paradise. What do they call that? Uh, this, the, the, the commons, right? Cutting, tragedy of the commons. Tragedy of the commons. Cutting down the branch you're all sitting on, literally. It, uh, and it also is famous, I found out via coal, for a bunch of psycho slabs that are, it's basically, yeah, super Hawaiian-esque style waves. Uh, but with a lot of urchins and limited access to the waves, you know, like fucking gnarly. And it just gets hammered by swell. And so he's there as a 19-year-old a kid riding horses from wave to wave with his 7-2 gun and surfing with no one, and it's 10 to 15 foot. And that's what he did for six to eight months, I think, he spent there. Yeah, and Fuck. he goes back all the time. He's, he's spent a lot of time down in Chile. He's the kind of guy who's just... Always gone to the beat of his own drum. At first glance, just seems like a, a bit head in the clouds. And you spend time with him and you're like, no, you have this all figured out. You have this all figured out and you're just not letting on how smart you are. Man, he's, uh, he's like kind of the Hawaiian version of Camel. You know Camel, Jeff Goulden? No. Camel's like, it's like in my mind, the like, two great indo ferals of all time or actually not of all time of say my generation roughly travis potter and camel camel lived in the jungle at g land for years uh and just it, it just was a like in the 90s and, and just was an intrepid indo dude who uh yeah he's, he's from west oz originally Toomey's guy but again just like on face value you don't think he's that onto it you know he just seems like a bit slow moving and um not super sharp but man the guy is wily as a fox 
and fucking packs it with the best of them. He's an underground legend in Australia. And I put Cole kind of in that bracket. Yeah, they're all just like, yeah, just unassuming, very humble, very kind, loving people. So easy to get along with, have a chat with anyone. And uh, yeah, they're all, you know. Has structured his life in such a way that he's going on awesome adventures. He he installs solar panels too for a living. Right. Um, so he has this this job with business cards uh, where, yeah, he, it allows him to surf for Patagonia, do solar, go, you know, go on amazing surf trips. And then he's also really into um, split boarding. So he goes on rad snow trips too. True. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good crew, man. The, the Patagonia team is full of interesting cats. I reckon, man. I reckon it is like uh, Ramon Navarro, who you mentioned. Wow. What an interesting character. I mean, just put South American big wave surfing on the map, like in the craziest way possible, coming screaming through one of the waves of that 2012 swell in Fiji. You know, he's kind of a household name before that, but you know that that just really for me validated the, the level of technical surfing in those kinds of conditions coming out of that part of the world. I mean, fuck the man at Punta de Lobos, obviously. Uh, Have but, you been down there? No, nah, never. Love to like go it. there, man. Yeah. yeah. Love to go there. But, uh, man, so good to have you here. Fuck, it's amazing. Second stint on the show. First stint alongside me, good mate, Zach Weisberg, uh, a.k.a. the head shaman at the Inertia. <laughs> and, uh, mate, shout out to Zach, one of the greats. But good to have you back. I mean, since then, I mean, you're well on the path then, but since then, you've gone on to become, uh, you know, what I reckon is one of the most worldly and accomplished guys in surfing full stop like you know great podcast great podcast the kyle team show fucked up podcast the guests you've had on there unbelievable like rogan-esque in its scope of people uh james fadiman matt taibbi all the way to mark healy uh jamie mitchell and fucking a million other people uh captain liz clark um and then, you know, you got that YouTube series, uh, Surfing for Change. Uh, you, you're writing now. We're actually dosed to fuck on, on Mudwater right now, uh, who's kind of the, the benefactor of an incredible publication, Trends with Benefits, which is another one of your projects. You've got so much stuff going on. And then beyond all that, you've managed to f- keep your surfing so tight, you know, at Mavericks, packing, not packing tubes, but I mean, you probably packed a couple but fuck, man, you know, dropping into big waves there, packing them in the mans in Sabawa. Uh, mate, you're living. You're flying by the seat of your pants. You're living. And it's, a, it's, it's amazing to see the trajectory you're on and to understand. I'm going to ha- hang out with you more, man. You, you're my fucking hype, man. Bro, I haven't I'm, felt this good about myself in a long time. Sometimes you, people need to spell <laughs> it out for you. you know? No, like, I feel so rudderless I, I, often. I'm like, what am I even doing but then everyone else, I can like tell their their story with like this great arc. But I feel like telling the story of yourself is sometimes the hardest. Yeah, because you're like you're too close to it. You, and you, so you don't exactly. really like. I, I feel like I'm uh, like a dog chasing cars most of the time. Media like, can feel like that too, because yeah. there's no tangible product at the end of the day. It's just words, and I, it can feel somewhat unsatisfying not to have you know a door frame that you've built at the end of the day or a wall you've put up or a fucking pineapple that you've grown. And we're just out here talking shit, but we're actually in the game of spreading ideas, spreading consciousness. 
and men, I mean, tell us about some of the work you're doing. You mentioned it off air a second ago uh, at, at Mudwater. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you know, we're just talking about it. America is a place of extremes. You got on one hand, fucking elementary school shootings and high school massacres. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got what you're doing. The shit you're doing is so fucking tapped and high end. Tell us a bit about, <laughs> tell us a bit about what's going on behind the scenes at Mudwater. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, James Fadiman, who, um, for people who don't know, is one of the foremost researchers of psychedelics and specifically microdosing. Dude, I, I call myself the maestro of microdosing. <laughs> but in fact, it's James Fadiman. In fact, it is James Fadiman. Yeah, he, he's the guy who was there from the beginning with, with Tim Leary. And he, the first time he ever did LSD was with Ram Dass at a little cafe in uh, France and was conducting a lot of the leading research at Stanford um, for psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy in the 60s. Um, and he loves telling the story of how in, in 1970, when Nixon uh, put a kibosh on the whole thing, mm. largely due to, to Timothy Leary, yeah. who, who was this great psychedelic luminary, but went to the extreme saying, we should put psychedelics in the water. And it really, you know, he was called the most dangerous man in America. I'm going to take umbrage with that, though. Like, I mean, that he might have been the fall guy that Nixon blamed it on, but you look at MKUltra and some of these, like, CIA, uh, well, that CIA program in particular, they were looking for reasons to discredit the left, uh, whether it be, you know, the Black Panthers, uh, the anti-war movement, and they were going to stop it. Nothing to do that. And they could see uh, the potential for LSD and mushrooms and marijuana to destabilize so many of the cornerstones of capitalism um that being the military industrial complex the pharmaceutical drug complex uh the prison industrial complex like and i it's my belief that um yeah maybe he became public enemy number one in the, but in reality nixon was just a fucking another hawkish puppet uh, of the deep state, and and he had to shut that shit down, and and he set fucking human evolution back about fifty years. <laughs> right. Like it was like a someone pressed pause on human evolution the day that that uh. Well, one thing's policy. for sure: Timothy Leary said uh, these kids are going to take psychedelics and they're not going to fight in your wars, which yep. is true. Yep. And that was what really scared the establishment. Hundred. So that's when they scheduled LSD as as a Schedule One drug, mm. and and meanwhile. Fadiman's doing all of this really promising research, and, and he he told me a story once about getting this letter from um, one government agency and said, you need to shut down your, uh, your program immediately. And he looked at his co-researcher and he said, meanwhile, they were having participants in who were tripping mid-session, and he says, I, I think we got this letter tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So he ended up being um, my neighbor, Really? Yeah. So, so Fadiman was uh, my neighbor, and there's this fun little wave where I grew up in Santa Cruz that um, I would bike down the road to just about every day. Turned out he lived right on that road. Um, and when I started my podcast in 2018, um, it initially was was just a way to do peer journalism with with big wave surfers. Mm -hmm. We would go surf Mavs and uh, I had the chance to sit down on the mic with 
guys like Sean Dollar and Jamie Mitchell and Flea and like just t talk about it from a perspective that was really fun because it was like I was out there too and it wasn't this like outsider looking in. And that was the inception of the podcast, but really quickly I learned that there aren't many rules in podcasting mm -hmm. and you can go wherever your curiosity leads you and it, it's actually um, imperative to do that if you want to keep it interesting. Mm -hmm. So I was at, I was always curious about psychedelics. I had done psychedelics. Um, already a lot of the breakthrough science was coming out. And when I learned that Fadiman was my neighbor, he was one of the first guests that I had on. And it, it um, gave way to this really lovely friendship, mentorship. Amazing. And, and since then, I have... That's probably what I've focused most of my journalism on in the past year, past few years, is this revolution in psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, and have had a lot of people on my show who are in the psychedelics movement. And then a few, just three years ago, um, one of my childhood friends, Shane Heath, started a company called Mudwater, mm -hmm. which was going gangbusters and having crazy success. And he said, I want one of the cornerstones of our business to be backing psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapy. So if you're interested, I'd like you to help run a, a media outlet that we create called trends with benefits that, um, talks about psychedelics, tracks this with journalism. And it's been quite the, quite the journey, man. I mean, it's, it's amazing how when you fly that little beacon up, just about everyone has taken psychedelics or knows someone who has and has interesting, you know, there are, there are such great insights to be derived from these substances when taken responsibly. And it's such a fundamental shift in, in medicine because it's so reliant on intention. Whereas current um, mainstream medicine usually just says, Hey, take this pill. Mm. You're going to feel this certain way. But with psychedelics, it can offer any number of options on the platter from um, elation to terror, depending on how your mindset going into it mm -hmm. and the setting in which you take these substances because they're so neuroplastic, they make your mind so suggestible. It's important to take them with the kind of reverence and respect that they deserve. And that's really one of the only kinds of, of medicine that it takes the person doing that kind of participation to get the result that they want. Right. And tell us a bit about uh, this kind of hazing ritual at Mudwater that you guys have got going on. So uh, for fresh employees, uh, it, this is the best kind of hazing. This is the kind <laughs> of hazing you want in your uh, business. Not None of this toxic masculinity like groping chicks on the way through and fucking chortling while you're burying your face in a bowl of blow and sipping champagne from yeah. between the fucking synthetic norks of some stripper. <laughs> None of that. That's fucking Wolf that. of Wall Street shit. Uh, we're going the other direction. Tell us a bit yeah, about, about what you guys do. We're weird little hippies. We do we do breath work and when we have a new employee in Mudwater, we uh we do an hour long holotropic breath work session. <laughs> yes. With, with the whole team. And what's funny is it's like, you know, some of us are surfers. We kind of grew up in this alternative culture, but some of it like it's also a business, so you have some pretty straight people there too. And the most fun is when you see them start to switch. 
and they've never done anything. You know, they haven't even done yoga, and all of a sudden they're like bawling, crying, thirty minutes into this breathwork session, like ah, like, I never knew my father. Fuck, and you're like, yeah, we're doing good work here, bro. This is awesome. <laughs> wow, big trauma so, release on the way into your job. That's insane. Oh man, that's so classic. Like. A big theme, it's so tripped out. Uh, just did a couple podcasts with Kobe Abaddon and we're just talking at length about breath work and, and what it's done for his life, what it's done for my life. And it's it, it seems to be the answer to literally everything. Everything. Like as good as psychedelics are, um, you know, breath work and meditation, it's kind of a more gradual entry point into the same state of consciousness. But once there... Once you connect with that consciousness, man, it brings a level of accountability and truth to the individual. That it safeguards your business. You know, you can't have a corrupt, uh, you know, insidiously lazy employee if they're doing routine breath work every day or you know, big group sessions. It's not possible. You you somehow channel this fucking. Buddha nature or Christ consciousness or whatever you want to talk about, whatever you want to call it, sorry. And um, it, it just makes you a undeniably better and more accountable person. And it's, it's fucking good for everyone around you too. I'm a big fan of it. You know who Alan Watts is, right? Yeah. Um, he did a lot of writing about consciousness and altered states of consciousness, but he wasn't as bullish on psychedelics as you know, Tim Leary and a lot of these other guys and someone once asked him like well, why not and he said psychedelics are a microscope and you don't want to live your whole life looking through a microscope mm, mm, which is i i really find that to be true it's like you know the um the when you get the message hang up the phone yeah, line exactly. like yeah. and, and i think that a lot of people can get stuck in taking too many psychedelics and i think that it can really mess people up um frankly if you're taking them often in settings where you're not really being careful um it can kind of make you a bit rudderless in my opinion whereas breath work is the there it's so much less risky and you can still enter into those altered states of consciousness and then ground straight back down mm-hmm. um it, yeah it just doesn't have the same risk profile and it's a and it's a practice that you can do daily to kind of tap in mm-hmm. with yourself, and it's it's just cool, man. I, I think that our generation is learning a lot of these skills, and and I think it's largely due to podcasts, man. Hundred percent, man. We were having this convo the other night at dinner, I think, uh, or, or at lunch, sorry, where I was explaining uh, something I learned, which is that podcasts. Uh, it was explained to me that podcasts are the most significant thing to happen to information technology since the printing press and for much the same reasons. It's democratized information flows. There's no gatekeepers anymore. And uh, just as the printing press gave rise to the age of enlightenment, podcasts are creating a new age of enlightenment and it's doing it in exactly the same way. With the printing press, that gave birth to scientific journals. All the leading academics and scientists on the planet were able to uh, give out their information freely. And podcasts, it's the exact same thing. Like, you know, whether it's the Hoobman Lab or Rhonda Patrick or Dr. Mark Hyman or Drew Peroid or Joe Rogan, like they're handing us back the keys to our internal state. And uh, then 
that is so powerful because this entire matrix that we live in, this failing system that's crumbling all around us in a process that Adam Curtis calls hypernormalization, like it's going to seed. And the only thing that you can really do to get back the power is to, is to take control of your internal state. And our generation's doing it, man. We're fucking doing it because we have to. We're, we're staring down the barrel of some scary shit. And uh, Adam Curtis, he did Century of the Self. Yeah, that's right. Century of the Self. That's really interesting series. Fuck, man. He, he's, uh, he, he has so many films and they are all so incredible. Uh, quite bleak viewing like he's an un <laughs> unapologetic truth teller but uh you know you, you gotta you know the truth will set you free as they say and there's no true adage but uh yeah man it's so, so who are you listening to most right now like who are who are the people that you really look to for good information whether it's information on health or philosophy yeah i'll go with uh i listen to the be here now network which is uh ram, ram more Dust. or less ram Dass's yeah. podcast like there's like fucking hundreds of his lectures. It's, I've listened to those. Yeah. They're so good. So good. Incredible. I mean, but that said, like Ramdas is a bit esoteric and waffly um, at times. I really enjoy uh, this guy, Drew Perroit, who is uh, the business partner of Dr. Mark Hyman. And it's just science journalism, basically. You know, he's not a scientist himself, but he always has the leading experts in whatever field. And, you know, I've been on this path for maybe close to five years, I guess, where or when all the news about CTE broke, about uh, like what repeated concussions can do to you. Uh, you know, I grew up playing a heavy combat sport, being rugby league, and, and grew up in a, a kind of dysfunctional, violent single parent home. And there's a lot of violence leading up to the age of like 22. So um, yeah, I kind of freaked out when all that news broke and I just went on this war path to educate and upskill myself. And it's led me to all these podcasts, biohacking podcasts and all these methods, this methodology that I do every day, basically uh, when I'm at home, which is wake up, Wim Hof like 20 minutes. Um, I'll meditate for 20 minutes to half an hour. Um, I'll then do like the Wim Hof push-ups, and I'll get in my chest freezer ice bath um I'll, I'll either go surfing or do, or do yoga if there's no waves i will uh microdose and then i'll aim to like exercise again in the afternoon you're like and then it's dinner time yeah <laughs> no seriously i want to do a satire about someone's morning routine Bro, that just goes until dinner time it fucking takes <laughs> if i procrastinate that shit takes hours and it's it, but it's like i feel great i'm ready to take on the <laughs> uh, shit time for my evening ritual now <laughs> seriously I mean, uh, it's such a indulgence to be, have the time to do that th through the job that I do working for myself. But, you know, I've condensed my working days into a lot less. I, I don't believe we should be working more than four days a week anyway. Fuck. Like, yeah. man, there's so much, yeah, silly. Well, you're, you're, you know, I'll tell you one thing, man. Since getting a, a jobby job, so they say, you know, which, which I didn't, had never really had before mud, I realize that your employer largely controls your mental health. 100%, yeah. They're controlling most of your waking hours. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if the managers and leadership aren't setting up a thoughtful scaffolding to allow their employees to thrive and grow mentally and spiritually, and even just having that on their radar, it can create... Um, 
a really destructive space mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that has been really cool to watch as Mudwater's a startup is we do every other Friday off. Um, we have no, no meetings before noon, which is also just, a, I think, a very powerful hack to, to be so that people can have that free time to at least wake up and be like, okay, I'm a human on a rock and it's spinning through vast vacuum space. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's start this up. But if you're just assaulted from the moment you wake up, you know, we've all been there. You, you can't really be the, the chess player. All of a sudden you're a chess piece. And I think that that's where a lot of people kind of spin out. That's, that's where I always spin out is when I feel rushed. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we are so rushed by the systems uh, or the, the mechanisms of the system we live in, namely like crippling debt pressure, house prices, cost of living. You know, it doesn't leave any any room to breathe. Uh, you know, you're up and you're just fucking in the commute already before you've like wiped the sleep out of your eyes. You're drinking coffee on the way to work in your car. You know, you got fucking all these like family obligations. Uh, you know, both parents are often working now to service these debts. It's fucking borderline unlivable man and 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 we're seeing the the evidence of that you know mental health uh is at you know abysmal levels in the western world uh and we have none of the tools to survive a crippling system like that like at least here in bali and in uh the rest of indonesia which is you know muslim bali is hindu obviously their faith is so strong that you know in all of these ancient religions, there are so many tools that we're just kind of having to reinvigorate now with our own Western kind of language and shit. But they, they've been doing this for thousands yeah, of years. We're now. like, breath work. We started that shit. And we're like, <laughs> uh, have you ever heard of Tumo breathing? We were doing that 2,000 years ago. Seriously, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, I mean, I, I don't think it, it really matters um, who started it or whatever. It, it's totally besides the point. It's just fucking just do it. Yeah, but there is this, I do think that there is this resurgence and this, this um, blend between ancient wisdom and modern science mm-hmm. that is really attractive for young people right now. And the results are immediate. 100%. And, and, and shout out to... Uh, the Tibetan Buddhist Mingo Rinpoche and Dalai Lama, you know, these guys have always been on the vanguard of getting their their religious uh, practices tested by fMRI scans, and they live for this shit, man. The Tibetan Buddhists are fucking so high end in that respect. I think they've been really on the vanguard of that. Wim Hof too, you know, he is he he's I've read his book. He's uh, you know basically my hero in life. I don't have heroes per se, but he's the guy who's uh, I respect his journey. He's like a, to me, like a biblical figure. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Really, like a blue collar guy who blue po- blue collar biblical figure. Yeah, and the fact yeah. he rejects that that title makes him even more biblical. Like fuck, so so would have Jesus, you know, back in the day. Like he's, Jesus was just a carpenter who did a lot of good shit for people, and, and Wim Hof's the same thing. Uh, you know, he lost his wife to suicide and went on this crazy hero's journey and whatever, whatever. But you know, he again has basically brought these traditions from the east to the west and vetted them with cutting-edge science and and that's enabled us to get to this point where we're like yeah look it's undeniable what this shit does otherwise it's, it stays in that woo-woo realm and yeah it's interesting what you said about uh how he went on his own hero's journey because i think that a lot of people come to these kinds of practices when they're going through their own 
journey of sorts. Um, right when I, right before COVID hit, um, I got out of an eight year relationship. And if anyone has gone through that experience, you know that it's uh, fairly derailing uh, spiritually. And I, when COVID hit, I was like, fuck, I'm out of here. I bought this old 1997 Ford RV named Starflight. And I was, um, went out to Colorado to meet a friend. And I was planning on being out there for two weeks. Ended up taking this road trip through Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana for four months. And um, would just do shout outs on the podcast. And someone would be like, hey, what's up, dude? I'm Dylan from Missoula, Montana. You should come cruise with our Missoula River surfers for a week. I'm fuck yeah, let's do it. Hey, what's up? I'm Kevin from Colorado. Like, come fly fish with me. And throughout this whole journey, I I had no routine. It was it was marked by elation and loss mm. it, it was, it, and freedom and depression. And there was just these wild emotional swings that I was feeling as I was driving through this unfamiliar part of America that's gorgeous. I mean, the... Those states, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, are so vast and mm. powerful. And a, a lot of these towns are marked by these sinuous rivers that flow through. Um, and I started cold plunging in yes, the rivers. Dude. And I would, I would yeah. plunge in and I would grab one of the rocks and I would let my legs flow up and just be there closing my eyes in this cold water, not really sure what was next for me. Um, and then I would go back to my RV a lot of time alone, a lot of time writing, not, not sure where to go next. Then I, and I found that I had to ground myself with these rituals. So I would, I would sit in my little bed, this little fucking RV bed and I would do breath work. Didn't have a TV to distract, to distract myself. Had the Sam Harris meditation app. Yep. Like, like do the meditation, do the waking up mm -hmm. and, um, grew a lot. I mean, it was hard, but I grew a lot and I came to a lot of those practices because I just needed some kind of more to kind of tie my, my spiritual ship to mm. during that time on the road. Yeah. I mean, adversity is where the growth happens. It's interesting what you said too. You know, one thing I realized during COVID actually, uh, and via reading this book, Lost Connection by Johan Hari. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to get him on the, Sick, the Trends with Benefits podcast. Fucking get him on that. He's a, he's a legend, very intelligent guy. But uh, one thing I realized is that it actually doesn't matter what you do in terms of creating that routine and structure. If you're socially isolated, fuck, dude, you will never be happy either. Social isolation is one of the cr weakest roots to mental illness that there is. It, this was a crazy revelation to have, and it was actually during a big dose of mushrooms that I realized this because I'd been uh, socially isolating uh, deliberately because I thought I had COVID for the five days prior to taking this dose. And man, I got the fucking, uh, the set wrong on that one. Got fucking hammered. But um, yeah, social isolation, dude, it's, it's, a, it's an insidious one. It's, it's fucking gnarly. It creates, it's just something about it. Like, I mean, there's a reason, I guess, why solitary confinement is the ultimate torture for prisoners, right? Like when you're locked up on your own or when you're on your own, it's like you lose the pace of life because you're not connecting with someone. It's like you lose the tempo of how to think 
how to breathe and how to talk and your your thoughts start to spiral off and become so fast that it creates shallow breathing and it toxifies your whole fucking system and you have these thought loops that are usually they're usually destructive and they're usually focused on the self Mm -hmm. which is a breeding ground for depression rumination is a cancer right so the 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 happiest i ever am is when i'm out reporting a story Mm -hmm. or doing a podcast because i'm not usually thinking about myself my attention is on the external world Mm -hmm. and that's a great place because you're just noticing the world you're not tripping out on what a loser you are how your life's not working out or basically telling stories about yourself that are usually so uncharitable no one would ever tell that same story about you (laughs) but when you're up some dirt road in fucking bozeman montana in your rv with no one around to check you it can get dark really fast Mm. and if you don't have those rituals to ground yourself including journaling, which I find incredibly helpful because it forces you to finish those thoughts. Mm. So if you're like, I, I'm a loser, I suck, it, you, it just writing it out on the page is really powerful because you get to s- test whether or not it's true. Hmm. And often it, it does feel like a, like a physical repository for thoughts. Wow. Just writing, down, writing it down feels like it, it, you're like vomiting it out onto the page and it's getting out of your head. Um, and it also is, is beyond just de- helping with depression. Journaling's a really powerful tool for retention. So if you, if you have a hard time remembering new things or learning new things, developing a habit where at night or, or in the next morning, you just write about some things that happened the day prior, whether it's like a new word that you wanted to learn or a, a person you met or a story you just write it down in a journal and it, it grooves that neural pathway um, so that you can remember it. Yeah, I remember studying for my end of school exams and one of the statistics I came across was something that, you know, you retain like 20 to 30% of what you read and like 70 to 80% of what you write down. But what you mentioned about journaling and getting those thoughts out and actually having to, you know, face up to the 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 self beatdowns like see it there in print fuck that's like so powerful and 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 for sure would have to sap some of the power out of those thoughts because they are fucking ridiculous man once you see them written down you must just be like like that that's how that's a bit a little bit absurd that's a bit much like uh, just like you know me uh telling you about your achievements also seems quite um powerful uh, in a different way. I mean, it's it's all true, like, but it's yeah, not until you write it down or hear it said about you, like, fuck yeah, I've done some shit. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I've just in the last year too uh, applied journaling to surfing because that I was traveling all summer. It was the longest stint I had had away from surfing since I started. Um, and when I got back to Santa Cruz that October, uh, I think I traveled. It was like. March, April, so it was like May, June, July, August, September. I was on the road and doing all this shit that I was not good at. Like going climbing with guys, going fly fishing, went on a hunting trip. um, And just so many new unfamiliar experiences. Um, I've been hunting the last few years, but but the other stuff, very little. And then got back to Santa Cruz 
in October and the fucking tap got turned on and we had the best winner at Mavericks ever. Oh, yeah. This is the, the winner that Mel got his fucking Mondo cone out there. Yeah. M multiple of them. And yeah. I was still living in my RV, so I would just drive from Santa Cruz up to Half Moon Bay, which is this cool like zone where Mavericks is, and camp out at Half Moon Bay because it was like day after day after day mm. at Mavs. And I would just keep, keep my big boards in the RV and I had all these routines and like habits. So I would like do, do my breath work. I'd go out, get a session out there, journal about it. And it was, I had never done that to my surfing. I felt like such an idiot, but I was like, holy shit. Okay. I was, I was sitting not deep enough and I would write that down. Like, okay, I was, I was sitting too far inside or I felt like my board was not really working. I'm going to try these different fins. And I got to be very experimental hmm. with it. And because we had so many sessions, I probably had like 30, 30 sessions out there through the winter, maybe 30, 40 sessions. I got to try different stuff out, which is rare when surfing big waves. So often when a big swell hits, you're just like, fuck, holy, this is heavy. I want to get a few. But when you get day after day, you get to, to analyze it and try different things out. And, and because of that, um, it was really the best winter of surfing I've ever had. And I think that it was a, a huge amount of it was due to the habits that I had cultivated the summer prior while not surfing at all. Man, that's fascinating. I'm fascinated to know as well, like talk to us a bit about the scene at Mavericks, the setup, you know, on those big days. Uh, I'm sure there was some particular standout sessions, but yeah, I mean, how does the lineup work? How does the pecking order work? Uh, I mean, it's super long periods there. Like, what's going on? He's like, fuck, how long are you waiting for sets? Like, I, I'm just so inter interested in, in the, the mechanics of that lineup and that scene. Yeah, uh, it's a special place. Um, so it's, it's a little over an hour north of where I grew up in Santa Cruz. Um, Santa Cruz has lots of point breaks, lots of diversity in waves. Um, Half Moon Bay has, has less waves, but they have Mavericks, which is the the reef out there breaks out of super deep water and it's shaped up sort of like a, f a finger going vertically into the shore which is why it's this deep water slab really and it, and it breaks more or less in the same pl place every time so you can get super close on a boat you can also one reason why you can break a world record out there is that you can sit in the spot and and sort of know where the spot is for a 60-foot faced wave to to come in, which you can't really do at, at a wave like Nazare, right? Where you guys are, I haven't surfed out there, but guys out there when they're paddling, it's like, it seems like you could just get so cleaned up by a wave that breaks 300 yards outside of you or to the left or to the right, whereas Mavericks, it's, it's kind of one spot every time. Um, there's two bowls out there. So there's the main bowl, which is where you, you can sit deep. And then there's a bowl to the, a little bit more on the shoulder called Lates Bowl. And that's actually where a lot of the, the tallest waves will come in at Mavericks. Um, and they're usually less slabby. Mm. Um, that's where you can get it's it's a little bit easier at late's bowl but you can still get a really big one that shifts wide mm -hmm. when kelly slater got second at mavericks years ago um apparently he was just sitting at late's bowl 
Um, that and he was just like, I'm gonna sit here and catch big ones that are easier to drop in. Um, and you guys like Flea and Pete and all those guys were just air dropping from the deeper bowl, which is more of a slab. Mm. Um, a lot of guys in recent years have started to tackle the left more. Wow, yeah, I think that's a Tory Meister, Tory Meister, packing one out there. Um, Lucas Chumbo comes wow. over a lot. Um, and it's a fucking psycho wave. I'm regular foot and just don't think I'm good enough to knife it under one of those barrels. Um, but it's been really sick to watch a lot of those guys go left. Um, in recent years, it the left only breaks to a certain size. So maybe like 25 foot Mavericks, it'll it'll still break. And once it gets bigger than that, the left sort of closes out and it breaks a little bit further out. Um, but interestingly enough, a lot of the worst beatings that people get are on the smaller days. Hmm. Um, the day that Mark Fu died, for example, was not a huge day, but the the inside waves will, will bowl up on that finger reef. And the what Mavericks is known for is the beating. And it'll just suck you to the bottom of the ocean mm. um and then it'll it'll pull you in and the wave regains power so it doesn't just dissipate um and on a lot of those inside waves you'll you'll get worked and you'll be like okay i feel like i'm gonna come up now and it'll feel like it gains more energy wow um so you can get these really long hold downs that will pull you in to um this boneyard area that is full of rocks um and usually if you get like three waves on the head you'll be in the boneyard zone and it's recommended to probably take your leash off because one thing that happened to flea out there years ago was he got caught he got his leash caught on one of the rocks mm -hmm. and almost died out there um so people say if, you know, if you're going to get a few on the head you can get you can get washed through the rocks but um it's probably smart to take your your leash off there um, and it's, you know, it's a wave that's crowded and especially on the big days, everyone flies over. Um, but it's a lineup that is pretty merit based. I, I think that, um, it's one of those lineups where if you go out there and you show respect, um, and you really want it, you can get a wave. Um, you know, people will will snap if you go out and it's your first session and you're like back paddling guys or or if you're paddling for too many waves and then not going mm. that's pretty fucking annoying because in a lot of big wave sessions there's there's long waits and you're sitting out there and you and if you fall on those waves I Greg Long has been a real mentor to me he's a super good friend and I I do most of my traveling with him um and he once told me he's like when you're surfing big waves it's kind of like having a lives in a video game and you have like <laughs> you have like four lives let's say you have four lives before it's game over that day yeah and if you're falling on waves that size again and again even if you're not getting injured you're just going to get so depleted mm. that you're going to want to get oh, you're going to get over it um, so pick and choose your waves well out there. Um, and I've 
I've sort of taken that approach. Like, and that was one thing that kind of shifted for me because I've been surfing out there since maybe I was like 22. Um, and I had a really good mentor early on named Tyler Fox, who's, he was a Maverick surfer. Um, he was actually my housemate, super talented small wave surfer too. So he had that kind of like small wave agility. He would go left out there. He would get really big ones on the right, make the final at Mavs pretty much every year. And he was really calculated. So he, he taught me a lot of safety going into it. And we would go up to Mavericks and there'd be a really big swell, but the fog would be set in and he'd be like, no, it's too dangerous. We're not going to go out today. So I was really grateful that I had someone like him early on to introduce me to it in a more calculated way because I have the kind of personality that is not very calculated. I grew up skateboarding. I was always like the fucking kid who would like ollie off the roof and be like, fuck it. Like, this is sick. And like slamming was like the best part. Oh yeah, this is rad. <laughs> um, and I went out there, you know, the, the first couple of years and I was just kind of slamming way more than I wanted to. Um, it, largely because I would just get caught up at the lip and I would be doing these fucking hero airdrops and just face planning in the bowl and it's not as cool after a little while and i i sort of realized like okay you gotta i just you gotta figure this out and don't be a i don't want to be one of those kooky big wave surfers that just like sends it and doesn't make waves mm. so i really started like looking at a lot of footage and dialing it down and and just realizing how important that that entry is like just to not just like whip it and then stay at the top of the lip, but to be very intentional about w the waves are moving so fast. You need to make it to the bottom of the lip and you need to intend that you're going to get to the bottom of that face mm. and paddle with all of your power to the bottom of that face and not be the guy who's this, who's paddling out when the set is coming and then whipping it and being too far on the on the lip yeah you right? like generate you got, so much speed paddling to you need it to, yeah you need to you need to generate the speed and you kind of need to hold the line on a lot of those sets you need to be like okay this, everyone's paddling out i'm gonna i'm gonna sit and then be right in the spot when the set comes so that was a um a big learning that i had over the past couple of years um and i was stoked because yeah this this last year when we had really good waves i didn't wipe out a ton, caught some really fun waves. Um, and it just felt like a, a cool personal, personal journey a bit too. Like it was less, it's, it's a weird thing when you, um, you know, growing up in Santa Cruz and kind of getting into big wave surfing, cause you, you can get a lot of pats on the back mm. and then there's a, a bit of pressure when you're out there to be like, fuck, I got a good one or I, I need to get a good one. And I think it's an unhealthy mental space to, you know, hang your hat on when you're doing it for the wrong reasons, which is, you know, a wrong reason is always to be doing it for external validation. Uh, if, if you're surfing according to the whims of the crowd, like you always pay a fucked up price for that. I reckon you always get hurt and flogged. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to want it. You got to be doing it purely for yourself, for your own. I mean, for me, it's, I just set the intention simply to ride energy at this stage of my surfing life. And no. Uh, the moment I start to think about, uh, you know, oh, what's what are the people in the lineup thinking right now about, you know, I'm up, I got to go this set, uh, 
like that's when I get hurt. I start to, I'm thinking about that, other people's judgment instead of concentrating on, you know, the wave I'm choosing to go and then my positioning on that wave and I get fucking lit up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Mavericks is such a special place. Um, you know, you, you, to go out there, you know, another thing that I say just about people who, who are considering surfing that wave is that there's a lot of other waves that can scare the shit out of you and are uh, really good um, stepping stones to that wave. I, I think that just because Mavs has the name, a lot of people go from like, they just have the attitude where like, I got to surf Mavericks. I got to say that I surf Mavericks. And in reality, I, I think it's a lot smarter and more sustainable to get into surfing bigger waves. A hundred percent. And see if you really like it. Of course. Like um, that would seem to be common sense, but yet so many people would fall into the trap and not doing that. Well, they think that the famous big waves are the only big waves, mm. which is just not true. It's like, dude, go to Uluwatu on that last swell mm -hmm. and there were some bombs that you could push yourself on. Um, and I think that that is a place where um, you can kind of get to know what your metabolism is for big wave surfing um, in less life-threatening situations. I, I interviewed Mark Healy once, uh, and I asked him some question about big wave surfing and you know what what he recommends for people. And he said, if you want a big big wave surfer, you need to. You need to know that you really want it, mm -hmm. and and it can't be an external um, goal. You need you need to be like I I this is something that I really want to do, and I'm willing to pay a price like the ultimate price because it's the most dangerous kind of surfing you can do. Um, and that always really that always really stuck with me because I've I've toggled my metabolism up and down year after year. And there are guys like Kai Lenny and Lucas Chumbo who will surf way fucking bigger waves than I ever will. And I'm so cool with that. I remember one day up, uh, at Mavericks a few years ago, I was, there was these crazy numbers. And one thing that can happen at Mavericks is you get a south wind, which is, um, it, it kind of goes sideways up the face mm. and De is really, devilish. it's devilish and it's super dangerous. You, it Fuck. makes it pretty much oh. uns unsurfable. I can't imagine. But, um, sometimes when there's south wind forecasted, it can go glassy for sections. Um, and then it, it'll kick up again. But there was this, there were really big numbers and I drove up by myself, um, and just wanted to, to check it out. And there was a, a boat going out that I was able to get a, a spot on. Um, and who was on it? Uh, Russell Bierke mm -hmm. was on it. Um, Lucas Chumbo wow. was on it. Yeah. Uh, Two of the biggest heavy hitters in the Heavy game. hitters. Um, who else? Hot Man. You know, Othman yeah. Symphony. Hot, <laughs> yeah, the fucking Moroccan <laughs> madman. Love Hot Man. The fucking legend. One of the great nicknames. One of the great nicknames. Hot Man, dude. I went, shout out to Hot Man, dude. I went to, I went to Morocco last so year, good. and that dude just styled me out so much. But um, uh, those guys, and and they were hungry for it. And I, it was just a scary, weird day. Um, paddled out there. Or we took a boat out and we were sitting in the channel waiting for it. 
and all of a sudden we were seeing these sets coming through that were breaking a hundred yards outside the main bowl. And I mean, these, it was probably 60 foot faced waves mm-hmm. coming through. Um, like the kind of waves that made me like so scared just to be on the boat. Like I, I was like, I don't know if I want to be in the ocean, like anywhere near the ocean right now. This mm. kind of energy is so intimidating. Um, and it's almost like a, a sorry to cut yeah, you yeah. off, but it's, it's being in the, the proximity of waves and swell of a magnitude you didn't really think was possible. It, it, for me, it's like a quite psychedelic experience. Very psychedelic. There's a bit of ego death in it. Like uh, I was in a situation recently where, you know, it, this is not the, the kinds of conditions you're talking about, but just a very large swell with a long period and a really high tide and it went flat for fucking 20 minutes and then the mother of all sets came through and we were sitting on the takeoff spot at this slab and we had to start just paddling for the shore and I remember just thinking like it was like a really like psychedelic moment where I was like I had that feeling of like you know fucking nothing you know nothing you think you know you fucking human you know nothing you're an ant like I felt like such an idiot in that moment I felt like so filled with like you know when the ego dissolved dissolves in those psychedelic experiences you feel like such a dummy you feel like such an ant it's a great way to put it <laughs> yeah. you feel like such an ant scale that up the 60 foot oceans and yeah dude i'm fucking telling that boat driver like yeah man can we like maybe uh yeah but i was <laughs> out there and and russell and um and chumba these guys were psyching. Like, yeah, because these guys don't have fully formed prefrontal <laughs> cortexes yeah. yet. The risk assessment part of their brain is still the size yeah. of a, a, a pea and it will soon be the size of a squash ball uh, by the time you hit your 30s. But yeah, these it guys does are, change. It yeah, does. It does change. But they're frothing that are fucking out there. And I'm the only local you know, guy from, from the area mm. um, on the boat. So there's this feeling like, you gotta rep the zone, dude. Fucking, yeah, what? Like, I want to go get a bomb in front of you guys, and uh, it was it was cool, man. I mean, I I genuinely thought about the, my mentors, like people who the the people who had taught me and and kind of brought me into this this community of big wave surfing, like Greg and and Tyler, and, mm. and I was just like, you know what? I don't need to do this. I don't need to do this. Nice. I, and I just sat on the boat. Nice. And watch those guys. A couple of them got fucking destroyed. Chumbo got one off the corner, and then um, the South Wind killed it. Um, and the session was over. One of the most memorable big wave sessions of my life. Didn't hit the water. <laughs> Amazing. The water. I love it, dude. I love that restraint. I love that respect. To me, that is what respect for surfing in the ocean is. Uh, it's the very definition of it. Knowing your limits, man. And it's one of the real problems surfing faces is you, you so often are surfing around people who don't know and don't understand the limitations of their skill. And it, it's destroying the sport and the culture. It's a fucking nightmare, dude. It's making it so dangerous. So many waves are going unridden because of people like that. Um, you know, it's this, a shocker. I, I once listened to uh, an episode with Tim Ferriss and Sam Harris, and they were talking about psychedelics. And, and they said, I don't think that anyone should talk about psychedelics until they've had a terrifying trip. Yeah, dude. And I feel the same way about big wave surfing because you can go out 
and get a really big wave or you can you can go out and get a couple really big waves you could have a whole season where you don't really fall and you start to feel invincible and and other guys are pulling back and you're like what i got this and it's only until you get rocked on one that you should be able to to talk about it mm. because then you know and th and there are a lot of guys that i've seen who will get really psyched on surfing mavericks and then they'll get rocked on one and they'll get a, a two-wave hold down or something and you won't see them anymore um and that's not like bagging on them that's like people just get to that point where they're like fuck that i thought i was gonna die mm. um and I've, I've, I don't want that to happen to me. Like I just, I'm like, dude, I want to have a fun, long surf life, and I don't need to get to that point where I think that my life is going to be over. Um, and I think that it, it takes a certain amount of restraint to um, have longevity. For sure, yeah, man. Well said. And you know, really, at the end of the day, it is about fun. And and for some fit people, fun comes in the form of challenging yourself and you know, progressing, staying in the zone of proximal development, progressing uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, and and that can all come through surfing. But uh, yeah, you need to really be checking your intentions uh, when the waves are of mortal coniquence. And uh, you know, speaking of cones of mortal coniquence where were you in proximity to the condor when he packed his all-time mondo cone the condor uh i i missed that session unfortunately i i was out when he and i had him on my podcast two weeks prior because he had also got another wave he didn't get a barrel on it but it was one of the best waves anyone had ever ridden at mavericks it was on um the day that Kai Lenny was getting a lot of really good waves, just Bluebird, big as it gets. Ian Walsh came over. Um, Twiggy was out. I was just maxing perfect Mavericks. So I had I had Pete on the show and had him walk me through that wave, thinking it was you know wave of the winter that was insane. And then two weeks later, he goes out and gets another one. I mean, that dude, I think he's fifty. Dude, he's, I was just about to 50. say that. He's in it, he, and he's just so um, dialed. He spent so much time out there and has such a love for that wave. You know, he's he's out there all the time just frothing and he's such a skilled surfer. You know, he has this real low center of gravity, like wide stance, shreds on little waves yeah, still. Yeah, exactly. And, he, and doing all of his commentating work over the years, I think too has kept him in the circles of the best surfers in the world. So he, mm. he knows what the best surfing in the world looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can do a lot for people. Like when people, when you're just surfing your local wave and you're only around your local, I mean, that's, that's me, right? You're like, I fucking, I'm ripping right now. And then you see a real pro surfer paddle out and they're just going at a velocity that you can't even fathom. Like you, you just don't know what you don't know. And I think that Pete is one of those guys who grew up in Santa Cruz where the level of surfing is high, but then spent his 40s around the top surfers mm. in the world. And I think that that's in part kept him so sharp into his 50s. Yeah, you can't be what you can't see. And <clears throat> I mean, it's so crazy that in our lifetime, we've seen surfing go from this sport that's done by people in their 20s 
into this martial art almost that's done by these fucking sensei shaman goats like Kelly Slater and Pete Mel, guys who are breaking performance barriers for all ages at like 50, man. It's fucking – and Grant Twiggy Baker's in that conversation too, like in, in – and Nathan Hedge, you know, like when the waves are serious, it's these dudes, like these old school veterans, these war horses who've been through the rigors of life and hardship and addiction and fucking who knows what. And they just cradle out of their caves and <laughs> fucking. Just with their walkers and then just find the best wave of the <laughs> That's day. That's it, man. Toss the Zimmer frame into the shrub, fucking put the rhino chaser under the arm. And... Yeah, well, I. Uh... You know, we're here in Bali. I just had a chance to do a mental eye trip for, for two weeks. And um, I've, I found that I had this insight, which was that you, your physical frame and, and your fast twitch muscles start going down maybe in your 30s, but your wave selection can really go up mm. as long as you're alive. Like your your understanding of the ocean and the layers, it's this the understanding the ocean is a language, and there are certain people who have done different things with language than others since the beginning of of time. Right, there are the Alan Wattses of the world, the Tim Learys, who can kind of weave together language in this way that's so masterful and poetic. And and I think that there's a similar parallel to understanding the ocean. And you see someone like Peter Mel or Twiggy or Kelly Slater, um, and they have such depth of understanding of that language, and th- all they need to do is be in the right spot, and that wave will come to them. Mm, 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 yeah, I mean, no better example of that. Uh, there is no better example of that than Kelly Slater in that Barramamia heat at Pipeline. You know, fucking, it's like, 10 seconds on the clock, sets come through, and he lets the first one go. Canole gets like a seven on it, but he, he, and he crunched the numbers, like knew the, you know, the frequency of sets compared to the amount of time left in the heat. It was such a, a tripped out thing. We had him explain it on our Margaret River uh, podcasts with him. And uh, yeah, gets the score on the death, comes out, like just lets go of the rail with still a section of the tube to go. It's, yeah, it's remarkable, man. It, it's so, I don't know, invigorating to see guys like that breaking these performance barriers uh into that age bracket it just you know obviously how can it not be inspiring to know that we've got so much more of our surfing life to go than we ever could have expected like fuck man when Oki won his world title in 99 he was 33 and it was unheard of 33 (laughs) it's comical i just uh i just listened to a rad podcast with um sam harris and a guy named will store um on the waking up app and the um, title's called Status Games. And he's this guy, Will Storr, wrote a book called Status Games all about how humans um, value status and, and that a lot of our civilization is built around our desire to gain status in certain areas, right? So surfing, that's one status game that we play. And how well you can play by those rules and attain status um, determines like how a, a lot of other people will treat you, right? Like, yeah, money is another um, one, and access, pot- to access to resources, access to resources, being right? waves. Yeah, um, and I I think about this pretty often because I th- I think that we're in this time where people's um, people are not playing 
enough different status games. So they'll do one thing where they'll only be playing the, the status game of how hard can I shred? Mm. And by the time they're 26, all of a sudden they feel their status start to drop in that game. And that's where a lot of mental health issues come into play, right? Because like, fuck, all I have is my, my Instagram followers and they think I do big airs, but now I can't do big airs anymore. And people start to spiral. And what this guy, Will Store said is that the key to psychological durability is to have a diversity of status games that you play. Mm. So you're like, I'm, okay, I'm a surfer here. There's my status here. But I'm also really into stand-up comedy, mm. or I'm really into ping pong, or I'm really into cryptocurrency. And I'm at various levels on these different status totem poles, but I'm actually getting comfortable and I'm, I'm sort of like cold plunging into these different games of status. And it's allowing me to become more psychological, psychologically durable as a result. And I thought that that was such a cool framing even within surfing right because you can you can play the how hard do i rip game but you can also play these other games of like how how was my wave selection today or like how how much did i enjoy it and th that is is something that this podcast really stuck with me because i think that i've sort of unwittingly been i've i've kind of known that but had never find it mm. in, in a way and, and I've spent a lot of my time doing stuff besides surfing um, because I saw a lot of guys who put all of their eggs in that basket and then and we've all see it you start to spiral because your whole identity is wrapped up right 100%. there yeah it's something I've taken away from Brad Gerlach and his wave key program um, all the conversations I've had with him about that and it's just you know the idea of nailing fundamentals exactly what you mentioned it, it could be just something so simple like positioning in a takeoff you know you can turn straight hand two foot closeouts into a really satisfying surf session just by getting the positioning and the drop perfect you know five times in a row maybe you get a floater you know it's it can be as as enjoyable as pumping waves in which you get flogged on too many and and don't make enough waves like that can be quite excruciating despite the fact that it was cooking mm -hmm. so it, it is yeah, about just nailing fundamentals and yeah, just being really intentional before going surfing and keeping fun at the forefront of your mind. I love the idea of diversifying, man. Like to be honest, surfing as fun as it is, like it, it you know, growing up in the city especially, um, it was considered quite shameful to identify as a surfer to, oh, really? to any large degree. Yeah. You know, surfers were fucking nerds compared to the guy doing ram raids and, and, and ripping off a hundred laptops out of, you know, like those, <laughs> the people, I guess the, the people who were popular uh, where I'm from were like often like street thugs, criminals, you know, those guys, you know, bombing trains with graffiti cans, like, you know, boxers, footballers. Um, and, and, and surfers were, were, often like spindly, weak, um, you know, your, your ability to a cutback has very little uh, translation into the real world you quickly realize in the city. Like it's just not relevant to anything. You know, it, it's, it's of more value in the social matrix of city living to be, uh, to have a propensity for violence yeah. as askew as that is. Yeah. And the girls were into bad boys. Girls were into bad boys. Um, and... I mean, yeah, it was just a different cultural matrix. Yet now I, I kind of, when I live in surf towns, 
Uh, I live in a surf town now on the North Coast and whenever I traverse surf towns like this, the conversations and the obsession with surfing is so full on. It, fuck, it wears me out real quick. I just don't have that much of an interest in it to the point. I just don't think it's healthy. I haven't permitted myself to take that much of an interest in one thing because I somehow knew deep down that it just wasn't that healthy. Specialization is for insects. And I'll tell you, dude, I got a, <laughs> I got a fucking full-time job now, dude. I moved down to LA this year and I got to search for waves and I got to grovel and I, I froth out. I fucking froth out harder than I ever have. Mm -hmm. And I surf a little less than I was. You know, I'll, I'll go a couple weeks without a session, but man, it keeps you hungry. Mm -hmm. It keeps you hungry, and and it's I'm learning new skills, you know, running trends with benefits, like seeing what a, a company is all about, and I'm I'm part of a team. I've never been part of that, and it's just diversified the status games, you know. Exactly. And I'm, I'm low status, <laughs> you know. And I'm exactly. like, all right, this is this is interesting. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. Um, but it it I think has allowed me a better relationship with my surfing than ever. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's no doubt about that. Man, I'm really interested to know as well, uh, you know, Santa Cruz is famous for methed up maniacs. What? What are you talking about? Giant man? fucking waves. But, what? <laughs> but you're not that. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> I mean, you're as far yeah, from you that. Haven't, you haven't seen me on a Friday night, though. <laughs> Friday to Monday. Is fucking just Friday fucking till Monday. On the glass, Bobby. Sleep what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the guys you mentioned, Tyler Fox, uh, yourself, like obviously, you know, the Santa Cruz University there, there's like this, it, it, it's kind of the, the home of the psychedelics movement, Northern California. Um, you know, there's this incredible counterculture history there. Um, where do you fit on the spectrum there, I guess, of the culture and what's it like sharing space with a surf culture that was so masculine, so methed up? And uh, just all about sending it and fucking, you know, just diabolical mental health outcomes. I mean, it's funny. You don't realize how different it is than most surf cultures until you leave. Mm. I just thought that it was a really uncomfortable to be a Grom at the lane or at one of these surf spots because a lot of these guys would make it very uncomfortable for you. And you're just scared, <laughs> frankly. And then, and that, if you're not from there, you're going to get snapped on. I always just thought that everywhere was like that. Um, and part of me has a kind of pride in it. To, I mean, a little bit of sheepish pride. Like so many places have just gone to Cookville with, you know, a bunch of Costco soft top wave riders. And there was something really rad about that. Like, fuck you attitude, like Santa Cruz skateboards, with a lot of surf skate crossover a lot of anti-establishment, which surfing was founded on. And, and there was a lot of pride growing up in that um, just very fast-paced culture. Um, and growing up, I we really did look up to, to a lot of these guys who were, I still think, you know, are really, um, I mean, they paved the way. Like there was a time when, when Ariel, Santa Cruz was one of the pinnacle places where innovative aerial surfing was going down mm, like in the late percent. Yeah. late nineties, early two thousands. You had a rat, Flea, boy. rat boy, Barney doing incredible stuff. And I, and I think that 
it might take some of that fuck you attitude to also have a lot of the innovation that comes with it. Um, mm. But there's a real dark side to it. And um, a lot of those guys died. You know, Barney died. Um, they all got hooked on hard drugs. And we, growing up through my teens, I was real good friends with Nat Young. And we did get to see that. Still friends with Nat. Um, and I think that he has done a lot for this culture of s surf Santa Cruz to show the young generation that you don't need to do drugs to, to be cool. Mm. Um, and you can let your surfing do the talking because he's gone further than any surfer in Santa Cruz ever has. Um, one of the only world tour surfers from Santa Cruz and, and someone who's stayed on for year after year. We had, we had Adam Rip Logel and Chris Gallagher who are from Santa Cruz. Gally, Jay Lampro winner, fucking legend. Is Lovely he? guy. Yeah. Man. Love Gally. Um, but I think that Nat has, has single-handedly done a lot to just have the kids not be into drugs. Um, but I think that along, along with that, and maybe this is just surf culture in, in general, there is less localism than there was, um, which is there. There's, uh, you know, the two sides to every coin, right? Like a lot of those spots are more are more crowded, um, but y there isn't also that sense of fear in the lineup. I mean, it's still localized in, in certain areas, um, but I th I think that um, my group of friends got to see what happened to a lot of those older guys. We were at the age where we got to see the, the, the tailspin mm, of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and as a result, we, I don't know how much it was as a result, but I think a lot of us too, like didn't, we had, we had parents who kind of influenced us to like do surf contests or play games or like uh, the, the idle hands kind of thing. We were always just occupied with more healthy activities and that led to this generation of Santa Cruz surfers being really talented. And there are a lot of young guys who are coming up who fucking shred super hard. And um, most of them are, are, have very good heads on their shoulders. Mm, yeah, well, there's that saying that culture is a reaction to what came before. I think so. And I, it's proved in this case as it so often is. And, ah, oh, man, like... I wrote a story actually for Stab called Localism is a Sickness. And, and what I meant by that, it was kind of the title's maybe taken the wrong way by certain people who didn't read the article. But uh, what it actually means is that, you know, localism, if you are the local and you're practicing localism, you feel the, the need uh, to lock down your area and, and try and control this resource, it will make you sick. You're ruining your day constantly if you're going out constantly. there and, and you're stressing out. Yeah. Like stress is is the the difference between what is and what you want it to be. So That's if good. like every day you go surfing and there's there's kooks or people from out of town like not you know sticking to the rules that you've laid out, this kind of arbitrary, often self serving set of rules. Yeah, one hundred percent self serving. <laughs> yeah, like you're making yourself sick, man. Like you you're flooding, you're in fight and flight mode all the time. You're flooding your central nervous system with cortisol, and you know cortisol cancels serotonin. So there is no hope that you can even experience joy and contentment. It doesn't matter how many pits you get. It doesn't matter how happy uh like you think the wave quality or the, the control of these resources thinks you think that's going to make you happy but it, it just can't biochemically um and i think that was i don't know, one part of the 
one piece of the jigsaw puzzle with a lot of these guys um, and why they deteriorated so badly. But I think as well, I mean, just not being able to handle the come down of surfing waves of that size, the, you know, just spending that amount of time in an adrenalized, you know, heightened state. Fuck, man, you got, there's a price to pay for that. Like, I remember we interviewed Pete after his, uh, after his crazy one at Mavs and he said, like, the whole next day, he just locked himself in his office. Like, he couldn't talk to anyone. You know, he was rattled just from the, the fucking come down from the release of chemicals. Uh, and then layer on top of that, like, the culture of pro surfing at that time, you know, these, these, these events were sponsored by booze companies. Um, you know, it was, the tour was rife with cocaine and just this kind of live fast, die young mentality and, you know, any kind of mindfulness or like any kind of training, even physical training was looked upon like as jockish, any kind of mindful training. People look at you like you're a fucking alien dude. If you meditated or did breath work on tour in the 90s, like, are you <laughs> kidding me? I, I do think that some of the uh, onus and responsibility should be put on some of the surf co- companies for sure from the 90s. Like I said earlier, your employer uh, controls your mental health. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys felt like they had to be party boys because that is what was hailed in surf media, right? And you're going to do, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. So I think that for a lot of those guys, they were getting celebrated by their sponsors and by the magazines, by everyone to be this person who could fucking shotgun beers and snort Scarface level lines of Coke and then go surf big waves the next day. Mm-hmm. And they could for a while. Like for a while, I was like, I remember when Flea won his first Mavericks contest and he used the prize money to throw this rager at this hotel called the Dream Inn and then had to spend all the prize money on uh, hotel repairs. And I thought that was <laughs> fucking course. sick. I was yeah, like, yeah. that's so rad. Uh, and... You know, and but it, it's so, it, it kind of is. It kind of is. Like, here's the, is. Like, so much it's of our so podcast cool. is dedicated to yeah. the, the folklore and the folk tales so that sick. emerge from this culture. But at the same time, we're, we're also really honest about the, the corpses and casualties it leaves in its wake. It's undeniable, man. Some of the greats have died so prematurely or you know, barely scraped through addiction and, and, and rehab. And, and they're all telling their stories now. And, and full credit to all those who have made it through that journey of Flea is one of them. I mean, I, I think that Flea is, is a real uh, example of someone who's come out the other side and now has a rehab program called Fleahab. I love it, yeah. And is, is bringing uh, ex-addicts through this program where he incorporates surfing into it, he incorporates a lot of really healthy practices, and, and he's, uh, he's done a lot, man. I mean, that, he's a, a, a brave soul who has made it through the fire and I, I have a lot of respect for Daryl Flea Roscoe 100% what an icon fuck uh, Kobe the same thing man you know he went through Oxycontin addiction on the back of a back injury that he had um, you know he prescribed those pills by his doctor for you know he, as he explained you know, a doctor he trusted his whole life he goes in there with what is a, essentially a chronic back injury that could have been cured with yoga and stretching Instead, this fucking old white haired dude goes, Oh, well, these are on the market, mate. They're yeah. on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, and yeah. the government's giving away for free. Have these, mate. So he's fucking on the oxies, he's addicted, and, and he gets off it. And now he runs almost the identical program where people, really? people come to Bali and uh, they just basically get on his like spiritual boot camp, which is just fucking, you know, Wim Hof and, you know, 
exercising and, and surfing and community. Like he's kind of created this, basically what survived him through addiction, he's created that and, and that's now his uh, medicine for people who are coming to him fucked up. I wonder, I've never thought of this. I wonder how much diversifying your status games would make you less likely to become a drug addict. Because if you're a lot of, Gabor Mate um, is, he wrote a, a great book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it's about addiction. And he, and he says, addiction isn't the problem. Addiction is the person's attempt to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Always. Always trying to medicate pain and trauma away, basically, it seems. To me. And I wonder how much diversifying your life and your skill set, I mean, I'm just thinking of this right now, would allow you to not have your identity so wrapped up in one thing and have those crazy swings if you've if you've hung your hat just on that one thing and, and moderating these status activities right. uh you know like instead of it being about surfing and uh you know these kind of like ultra competitive uh pursuits like why not make it about fucking qigong or chess or like you know really like like really nerdy kind of low-end high serotonin uh, activities uh, I feel like there's just this, it's really deeply etched into masculine culture. There's this kind of aversion to just calm, lame, little fun things like, you know, knitting or, or <laughs> yeah. painting or fucking reading a book or like having a book club. Like we had a book club uh, on the North Coast recently. And oh, it, that's radical. You know, it turned into fucking smoking joints the size of my forearm and uh, doing group Wim Hof and getting in the ice baths together. But fuck, it was good, man. It was so good to connect like that with other men and in this, you know, really it's an interesting thing. Like status to me, um, confers some kind of competition, which I, I kind of like. I wonder how these kind of more ancient religions and, and you know, uh, creeds would view something like that. So like, I always kind of check my value system against uh, what I know about, say, Tibetan Buddhism or something like that, you know, where it's, it's all about, and, and Balinese Hinduism, where it's all about just uh, paying it forward with good karma and, and being kind to each other and, uh, you know, practicing meditation and, and yoga and taking care of your community and your family. I don't see a lot of like status in that, in a, but maybe I don't well, understand in, status sure, well, correctly. In, in, uh, it's like seems so selfless to me. This <laughs> sure. So, so in um, a lot of hunter-gatherer cultures, um, they were fiercely egalitarian. So if you went off and shot a big deer... Uh, and you thought that you were hot shit, the tribe would literally surround you and make fun of you. And they'd be like, what would you do for bringing that, bringing that little bag of bones back? <laughs> Who do you think you are? And it was uh, a mechanism to keep status in check because they realized that humans just, oh, we just are status oriented. We like doing things and we like getting better at things and, and raising our status through that. But they knew how out of control that could get like you could you know turn into donald trump if unchecked mm. so they had a lot of these mechanisms in place through humor and um and and heckling which could keep people in order and and i think that that like dude just fucking lighthearted heckles among friend groups are a very human thing because it it keeps people in check 
So throughout history, we have had um, cultural setups that, that did keep people in check. Um, and a lot of it was used through humor. Man, that's so interesting because in Australia, we are often written off for having this really virulent strain of tall poppy syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, but maybe we're just like ultra evolved or like <laughs> or maybe yeah. not evolved at all. We're just kind of Neanderthals still, but that's yeah. how we should have stayed. Well, I think that hunter gatherers. So I think that what tall poppy, I, I love the term tall, hop, tall poppy syndrome. And I think that um, what, where that can become really dangerous is where P is when your social group is tearing you down for trying new things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It's like, what, you're going to try, you're going to try Qigong, you fag, mm -hmm. like, you know, what do you, and then I, you see a lot of teenagers who are afraid to try new things mm -hmm. because they're terrified of what their friends are going to think of them. They're going, oh, you're going to be, I'm, they're going to think I'm weird. So they only surf, they only do what's cool. And this has just become um, metastasized with social media where people are comparing themselves to everyone else all the time. So I think that like my view of tall poppy syndrome is it can get dangerous when you're afraid to try new things because of what you think your friends are going to think of you. But it can be, it's really helpful when you're all playing the same status game and you are just heckling each other if you think you got the barrel the day. 100%. And you're talking about it. A hundred percent, man. I, I really, I'm really keen to get into some of your achievements because, fuck, dude, you've lived a fucking an incredibly decorated life. Um, what you the you went to to Gaia University where you got a degree in, in green business. Uh, I'm really interested to know. I mean, what did you fucking certificate come on a banana leaf? It came like, in a banana leaf. Yeah, actually, that's amazing. They, yeah, yeah. They they uh, smeared period blood on a banana leaf and <laughs> did a moon circle around me, and I got my degree. It was amazing. Um, now it, it was a a, a pretty hipty dipty little school, um, but it was done completely remote. So when I was when I was 18, um, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. Um, I was, I, I think ever, ever since I was a teenager, I've always romanticized um, journalists. I always thought that the early Vice guys were so sick. Those were like my heroes. I would just watch YouTube videos of guys like Thomas Morton and Ryan Duffy and like early Shane Smith just going out telling badass stories. Um, my dad is a, a filmmaker, so I had, um, some of those skills early on, just knowing storytelling. Um, and I have always been drawn to that. So I saw surfing as a way to couple that desire to basically like do some form of vice myself, um, as a, a way to be able to spend my early twenties. And Gaia University was a school that gave me credit to go out and do the Surfing for Change series. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that I was doing on these documentaries um, was school credit. Uh, and I think that it provided a lot of um, skills that I use now in terms of, of time management and deadline setting um, and being self-motivated to just pick up the fucking phone and call someone to you know like i yeah i just have no problem like walking up to someone and being like hey will, will you be in this film i'm doing you, you probably have a bit of this too right you're just like 
a bit of a battering ram. Like Hard to going, develop it. Yeah, it's, you it's, have to develop it. Man, it goes against every cell in my body to go and bother people I don't know, especially you know people with high profiles. Fuck, that was a torturous part of my job having to you know talk and pester my fucking childhood <laughs> yeah. heroes. It was rattling. Oh man, it's so gnarly. But, but it's yeah. such a good skill to to develop because in school, if you're just giving us given assignments to do, you become uh, a worker bee and you don't know how to um, be a self-starter um, and and you don't know how to you don't learn how to manage your time in a way that can allow you to meet that deadline a month two months down the road so I think that I, I gained a lot of those skills and I alt but I think I missed out on some of the the social aspects of college that I wish I would have had I, I think I've had to do some catch-up in like just basic shit like math or writing. I was not a very, I was not a very like bookish or reader, much of a reader um, really until my mid twenties. And then a, a switch flipped for me and I just became psychopathic about becoming a, a skilled reader and writer. Mm. Um, but the, the surfing for change and guy university period, I felt like was, really helpful just in in learning how to go out and do stuff myself man talk to us a bit about this surfing for change project you know what were the the real lessons learned in it what were the, the peak experiences the memorable stories that you told yeah the early i had early success um because i um like you you've mentioned this before um our as a journalist drawn to where the money goes, you say if a story doesn't make sense, follow the money. Mm -hmm. And I, as a surfer was interested in environmental stories, but found that the, the deck was so stacked against environmental initiatives, um, that there wasn't, there was just a really big problem because all the money was going to corporations like Exxon Mobil, um, and Chase bank and the Man. like, and I actually found that, so this was, I found that um, much of it, a lot of environmental um, projects are, they need a financier. They need a mm. bank to underwrite mm. the project. Um, and not all banks are created equally. I think I might have talked about this last time on the podcast, but where you put your money and, and depending on the environmental philosophy of your bank it determines how they're going to lend your money mm, out mm. and which projects they're going to underwrite. So when I was 18, the first Surfing for Change short film I made was about this proposed coal power plant down in Chile, right along this sick left, and it was being underwritten by Bank of America, which at the time was one of the largest financiers of coal power. And I talked, I was kind of just this grom talking about how if you put your money into a local bank, um, it's lent out, but it's it tends to be lent out only within your community and to business, local businesses that can help your your neighborhood thrive. That that video sort of went viral, and I got a lot of media around that project, um, which I think the, I've learned of a few things. It's a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me the question, like what were the lessons learned through the whole series, um, and. That project had so much success, I kind of just thought that I could do any video and it would be awesome and get a lot of media attention. But it was a bit like 
winning the jackpot on your first go. Mm. Because I was getting uh, articles in major media outlets about this project that I did, and I just thought, like, oh, cool, I can, I can do this every time, and it's going to hit. Mm. So in the subsequent years, I did short pieces on um, the clothing industry. I did pieces on plastic pollution. Um, I did a piece on a proposed nuclear power plant in Chebay. Um I actually came here to Uluwatu to do one on the trash epidemic in Bali. And I learned a ton about storytelling. I had great experience meeting people, you know, learning how to cobble together footage and edit it. But none of them really hit like that first one. And often people are still like, oh, you're the dude who did the banking piece. And I think that um, what I've learned since then is that you need a certain, it's very helpful to have a certain level of novelty within a story mm. and the connection of unlikely worlds. So that was a piece where this surfer was talking about the banking system. Mm, mm, mm. And that, all of a sudden, people in their minds don't know how to place that or categorize you or write you off. So it draws in interest. I think that a really... Um, powerful f just form of making stories work is to show show unlikely connections and tell those stories. Where if you're just a surfer doing a story on plastic pollution, it's like fucking yawn. I don't mm, I don't mm. care. But it's like that saying like um, dog bites a man isn't a story, but man bites a dog is a story. Mm -hmm. So since then, I've found that more novelty and more connection of disparate worlds can be a really good method for making stories that actually hit. And in terms of, you know, what did you learn about the systems that govern this world? Like, is there a way that you can sum it up, you know, in a fairly simple way? Like, there is some incredible system failures in this matrix. <clears throat> it was really simply put, uh, by Giannis Varoufakis on uh, Democracy Now. I listened to an interview with him. Uh, do you know Giannis Varoufakis? No, he, I love Democracy Now. Yeah, well, that's another one of my go-to yeah. podcasts. Um, he was the finance minister for Syriza in Greece, um, and you know, just a—he's a socialist. He's a—he was a, a heavy-hitting politician in Greece at a time of incredible financial upheaval when uh greece's economy collapsed and uh you know germany came knocking for fucking millions of dollars in debt that they thought they were owed and greece said hey you still haven't paid us our debt from world war one we're not paying your fucking debt <laughs> which right, i thought right. was so funny yeah that was, that was hilarious move. dude uh i mean uh, that whole that whole story is so fucking funny to me it's like these this country is like the birthplace of fucking philosophy like they are not idiots. Like they were just living off credit and Germany's buying up this debt going, Oh, like, yeah, we're going to get all this money someday. And then when, uh, when it all went tits up, they're like, uh, yeah, we're not paying. <laughs> what are you going to so do about gangster. it? We're going to invade, so you invade us. Uh, but anyway, Varoufakis, uh, he, he's written a book. I've forgotten about it and what the name of it is now, but he just made the point that the system works as simply as this. And you really touched on this with your banking, uh, TEDx and your banking episode, um, where it's like the, what is it? The Reserve Bank prints the money. Federal Reserve. Federal yeah. Reserve prints the money. That money is given to banks. 
and those banks fund infrastructure projects. The infrastructure projects that the banks fund, uh, the investment banks, say your Goldman Sachs and, and whoever else, are almost always fossil fuel infrastructure products, like, uh, sorry, infrastructure projects. Um, so, and they're bankrolling, essentially the Federal Reserve is bankrolling all of these ultra crooked industries and infrastructure projects, which where that affects the common man, like we're all doing jobs. Uh, we're slaving in service of forces that are underpinned by the Federal Reserve. Um, like it's insane. Like you know, petrochemical companies, I guess you know, they underpin the cost of so many things. Like the cost of petrol goes up. Like I, I'm starting to get a bit, a bit lost in the miasma of the matrix. Sure. But yeah, yeah. That, well, that, that, that fucking reeks to me, that system. How is that possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, one of my heroes is Matt Taibbi. Yeah, incredible a, journalist, incredible yeah, writer on, of, on finance. Yes. Uh, and he had a, a great line, a great opening line in one of his Rolling Stone articles, which is referring to Goldman Sachs. And he says, the world's greatest investment the world's largest investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I had, uh, I had him on the podcast and he said that the, um, so we haven't touched on this, but uh, I did a satirical awards show called the Motherfucker Awards. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Taibi hosted it. Is that right? Um, oh, he presented an award that. Uh, yeah. So so Taibi presented uh, a Motherfucker Award. So these were it was a satirical Academy Award style show where we celebrated the corporations that fucks Mother Earth. <laughs> nice. and, and we got comedians to uh, deliver acceptance speeches as the heads of. JP Morgan Chase, the number one financier of Tar Sands Dirty Energy Globally, uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical, the corporation that brought Oxycontin to the world. Um, you know, we got the we got the comedian Simon Rex, aka Dirt Nasty, to present as the uh, the head of Purdue Pharmaceutical. Um, which like, is actually- Purdue, Purdue Pharmaceutical, your pain is our gain. <laughs> um, and we got uh, Taibi to present the one for J.P. Morgan Chase. We got these great uh, comedians, Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher, who are a husband and wife comedian couple. And they came up as pretending to be the brother and sister heirs of J.P. Morgan Chase. And they're in set at their... Uh, acceptance speech was about how they were in an incestuous romantic relationship. And the only thing that made them horny was financing dirty energy. It was <laughs> fucking so brilliant. Um, but we had a lot of fun. Um, we had a lot of fun doing that. I, I co-created that show with a guy named Chris Ryan, who's um, been another real mentor of mine. He wrote a book called sex at dawn, which was um, a bestseller all about the prehistory of human sexuality big thinker. He wrote a more recent book called Civilized to Death, uh, The Price of Progress. Um, and we were chatting one day about uh, how Earth Day was coming up. And it's such a um, smug holiday because everyone's kind of talking about, hey, Mother Earth. But I'm like, but Mother Earth is losing. We should be celebrating the winners here. Um, so we're like, we should be celebrating the ones that are fucking Mother Earth. Like, ding, ding, the motherfucker awards. 
So um, we presented that <laughs> two years in a row. Uh, it was so much fun, so much work, um, and kind of unsustainable. And then and then COVID hit, so we we stopped doing it. And now I work at Mudwater. So I think that we uh, we we did it two years. I felt good about it. It's, it's going down as legendary. Um, but Taibi, when I interviewed him, I kind of asked him a similar question. Um, and he said, you know, all of your, your winners, all the motherfuckers have one thing in common, which is that they have sociopathic business models. Mm. And I think that, um, what people, I think that where a lot of people go wrong in their thinking about the problem is they, they think that just government at large is the problem. And they then will vote in ways that go against their interests and they'll gut organizations that are government organizations that are really the only mechanism to keep a lot of these corporations with sociopathic business models in check. Mm. So I think that that the current cultural... um, attitude towards the government is unwittingly pushing um, a lot of really danger a lot of environmental policies that that are put in place to keep the air clean and the water clean they're pushing a lot of that to the side so I think that it's it's just important for, and that's not to say that government doesn't have really overbearing policies, and that we should also be very critical of government itself. Um, but the fact is that just because a company like Coca Cola or or J P Morgan Chase has a great marketing team, doesn't mean that they're not deeply sociopathic. Um, and your government representative is is really one of the only people who can help keep that in check Mm, and the investors themselves the investors themselves i mean the reason they're sociopathic is because they answer to nothing else but the the profit dividends for those invested in these companies so you've got this millions upon millions of people worldwide uh you know middle class upper middle class maybe even working class probably working class trying to get into the middle class who are invested in these nihilistic corporations uh, in a bid to, to get ahead and get out of this debt-crushing system that they're in. This, yeah. and, uh, and that's also to, like, I, I really want to be careful here because I don't think that people who work at J.P. Morgan Chase or Coke or any of these big corporations are necessarily bad people. I think that most people just get into this system and are trying to make their life work. Um, but I... I now being inside a very a fast growing corporation, you know, Mudwater is trying to become a, a billion dollar corporation. I will say that the opinion of the public matters a lot more than most people think they do. Hmm. Like if if you get fifty people to all call a company on the same day and you and you actually organize you'd be amazed how sensitive these companies are to public perception. Um, so you are you are actually more powerful than you think. And I have had just a little taste of that now being on teams, you know, at a fast-growing company. 
And boycotts. Boycotts are always a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a, a public showing of solidarity in the face of a, a crooked corporation or institution yeah. that have been so yeah. effective. If, if, I think that if we redirected a lot of our public shaming against, against you know, uh, a lot of individuals, some of which who deserve it, but a lot of which who don't, and we redirected that at uh, sociopathic corporations, it could do a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, every dollar is a vote in capitalism, but sadly, so many people are so short of a dollar that they have to do desperate things for a buck. And uh, that often involves you know, bankrolling fucking crooked corporations just because they're desperate to, to get out of this fucking crushing vice uh, that has been created by uh, a system that creates a simulation of scarcity or it's not a simulation, the scarcity is felt, but it doesn't need to be there. I mean, there's people with more money than can be spent in several lifetimes and, you know, there's just so much stored up productivity. One of the, the crazy things, one of the crazy statistics I came across that really just shattered my hope in the future of capitalism was that man like around about the year 2000 technology got to a point where the productivity just accelerated to such an insane degree like fuck man we were now capable of cultivating food on a scale that was just a billion times larger because of certain automation of you know certain key agricultural devices same with our computers and we just had this crazy productivity boom around about the year 2000 and what should have happened at that point was that that productivity got passed down to the workers, i.e. fucking everyone on the planet. What actually happened is that that productivity got sucked up into the bank accounts of of Jeff Bezos and the like, and employee wages have stayed more or less flat while CEO um, wages have gone up like 937% and and shit like that. And, And the whole system is so weighted in the direction of the global investor class, the global elite, the, the rich, that you know, they've bought governments, like they've bought media outlets, like Bezos literally owns the Washington Post. Like, you know, so our instruments for change and, and culpability have been so deeply corrupted by the rich that there's really no hope. And it just seems to me that we're sailing in this direction literally with fucking super yachts, which is like the biggest and best waste of money there is like the, the the global elites need to have the most ornate besides a costco surfboard of course that's yeah yeah well, that's it i mean they're, they're two sides of the same coin they're both barely seaworthy vessels at the end of the <laughs> well played but uh i mean so you know super yachts are just this fucking tremendous waste of money because it, it's a, a place to hide capital you they need somewhere to put their money because they can't put it anywhere else. They can't even put it into housing because if they were to do that, they'd have to have a house the size of fucking, I don't know, New Zealand or some shit to hide all that money. It'd have to be like so big. So they're putting in these insanely stupid vessels. And anyway, I guess we're just heading in this direction where it's almost getting to a point where the rich of the rich, the, the orchestrators of the system, the people, you know, every dollar's a vote. Well, these people have fucking billions of votes to, to your one. Um, and we're heading in this direction where they're buying up big slices of land in New Zealand. They're, buy, they're buying these fucking crazy boats. It's almost like, are we heading for some like Noah's Ark apocalypse where <laughs> Bezos and the like are just going to be sailing rings around the world while we're all fucking underwater? I mean, it's kind of seems to be where we're heading, like with climate change and sea levels rising. It's all a bit 
uh, paranoid and apocalyptic, but that is literally, that's not a lie. Like what I just said is actually the direction that we're heading uh, with climate change and, you know, the potential of water wars and, um, you know, in- incredible levels of drought and the, the, the fucking destruction of cultivatable land and uh, the scarcity increasing. Like, fuck, man, it, it's a scary time. And um, I, I'd be interested to know what is your faith in capitalism at this point? Because <laughs> the last time you're on the podcast, you and old man Weisberg fucking double teamed me on uh, capitalism versus socialism. Did we? Yeah. Oh, geez, I don't remember that. <laughs> you're like, uh, anyway, we, we got into it a little bit in brief, but I actually listened to an incredible podcast uh, with Lex Friedman. Uh, mm. He interviewed Steve Keen, who's actually a surfer. You should get this guy on your podcast. I couldn't get a contact for him, sadly. I was trying to get him on mine, but uh, maybe you can do better. Steve Keen, he's a, uh, a Sydney University professor, and he surfs, and he fucking is like the leading thinker in Marxist economics. And, and his interpretation of, or his understanding of, um, parallel systems to capitalism is second to none. And what he explained was, I think it was in Marx's explanation of the way capitalism would work, it was that capitalism would come before socialism. Capitalism would be a necessary step to get to socialism. And capitalism has served its purpose in that. It has generated incredible levels of productivity and abundance. It's just that it's all being withheld by elites and uh, I don't know what we do about that. I don't know if we sharpen the fucking guillotines or, uh, I mean, I don't know how we shake them down, man, but it's got to be done. It's got to be done quickly. Because you, yeah, yeah. So do you think that uh, when you're talking about socialism, do you think that that should include the government uh, me- taking over the means of production of goods? I, I don't even... Because that seems I, like you know that the argument for capitalism is like, well, the genius of capitalism is is competition, and if you had the government being the only shop in town that's producing cell phones, cell phones would suck and they would cost right. thousands of dollars. But because you have competing organizations, you're going to get a better product out of it. And we did. We got a great product, and that product was a technological boom like no other and a a boom in education and understanding and awareness that is fucking on the steepest ascent. Like it's going off the graph right now, human intelligence. But, and you know, it's also plateauing due to, you know, the dumbing down of food, water, fucking educational systems. But (laughs) the the competition, it got us to this point. It was essential. But now um, everything's so weighted like what I'm saying, I don't really understand what socialism is necessarily. I understand a few key principles of it. In Australia, we've had several socialist prime ministers and they've given us things like universal health care and public housing near the beach. You know, like fuck and high wages for workers. It's the workers paradise. A tradesman earns fucking crazy money. A cleaner earns crazy money in Australia. And, and so they fucking should. That is an essential job. They should earn much more money than a fucking banker or a lawyer or a journalist. Uh, I mean, sadly. <laughs> Journalists are making that much money. <laughs> They're making pretty no, shit I, money. I, I think that, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about it for a bit because someone once explained it to me that in America we have two systems. We have socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Mm-hmm. So when the banks needed to get bailed out in 2008, that was a socialist move. Right? If, if, if they were to just 
let them fail, that would have been true capitalism. But what we have now is two different systems, and that to me seems very unfair. So I think that a redistribution of resources, even just taking some money out of the military budget and putting that into things like housing, things like universal basic income, I think would make our system a lot better. And I think they would really improve the mental health of the people. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Andrew Yang. I'm a fan yep. of the idea of a, a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. As was applied in Dolphin Canada and, and, and several other, uh, there was trial versions of this that were done. And even like the Nixon government was in favor of it yeah. in, in the seventies. Like it's it, like, it's it your, works. it's your money. Right, like you you paid the taxes. Mm. It's your money. Why would you not want that as a a benefit? And for as much bureaucracy as there is within the government, one thing that they can do is cut checks. And what they've found in a lot of these test studies, which they've done in stocks in California, in Los Angeles, California, is that people use the money for things like car repair, childcare, like things that that very much benefit yourself and i think that you would do it would do a huge amount to just not have so many people redlining because such a huge percentage of people in america right now don't have 500 dollars saved um 70 percent of americans uh this is i'm not going to say the stat actually because i don't i don't have it off my head but it's a fucking huge amount of americans that are barely getting by Mm. and i think that that's an example of um, a lot of conservative ideology right now taking holds with the poor and and lower middle class and getting them to vote further right, which is never going to end up with a policy where you could get something like universal basic income. And that, to me, is an example of people voting against their interests. And I mm. think they've kind of taken, they've co-opted or, or used a lot of the stupidity of the messaging of woke culture um, to, to do things like oh, this is woke capitalism. This is and and that when they do that because it's so un- unattractive right now in America to be seen as woke and be seen as this uber sensitive kind of cancel culture mm. type person. You see, I've seen a lot of people unwittingly move further right in their political dispositions just because they don't want to be seen as. Um, as woke, you know what you want. You want to hear my paranoid conspiracy theory about what woke the origins of woke politics? Sure. My take on woke politics and identity politics is that it could potentially be CIA psyops. That's just, <laughs> and uh, it's it's been because they have been trying to fracture the left into a like a million pieces for fucking a long time, man. Probably since the since the the nineteen fifties, nineteen forties of red scares and the whole way through. And this is the most successful attempt at it yet because they have managed the to convince left people to do the work for them. The left wing politics, it's always about class, man. It's always about fucking cash flow. And it's always about money. Like in this system, like money is just time and it's stored up stress. Like, you know, fucking waving rainbow flags and like, you know, all the like woke political correct uh, language and shit. It is no, 
It is no substitute for cold, hard currency in your hand. It's no substitute for the ability to, you know, feed your family, uh, get health care for your family, house your family. Like, it's always been about class, man. The left always understood that. And somehow we've forgotten that. Woke politics never talks about class, man. And the people who never talk about class in that woke realm, they're always middle class and upper middle class, man. And they're coming out of these imperial institutions like your harvards your yales i mean your berkeley's like yeah as as countercultural and, and um you know educational as they might seem these institutions are still at the end of the day like american institutions america is being the home of capitalism and uh you know just it's being so the, the world police the home of the military industrial complex you know probably killed more people than the nazis since the end of world war ii like the u.s administration american people people beautiful people some of my favorite people are american people but the system is fucked up there man and we're all paying a price for it i think you said it really beautifully which is that um it's it was a very big mistake for the movement to focus on race instead of class and when you had thinkers like george orwell they were dis they were distinctly focused on class. Mate, Malcolm X was distinctly right. focused on and class. Angela Davis was distinctly focused on class. These were some of the the biggest and and most boisterous and bombastic black thinkers of their time. They got it, of course, they got it, man. Fuck, like, right? But but to have the the care of the movement shift only towards race and gender alienates such a huge segment of. Of the American population, right? Which is every the, the, fucking working every, person, every man. fucking working person out there shifts them all to the right, shifts them all to the right immediately. Um, and I, I don't think that's a, a CIA um, s conspiracy. It I'm reeks of MK angry. Ultra, dude. It's one shade I, off it. If, you know, if I didn't know so many woke uh, people from Santa Cruz, I would uh, probably believe that. But I, I know so many of them too. But here's it, my theory. It's not that, look, 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 it's not that woke, the woke people don't realize that they go along with the trend but you think that's the coming idea, out of the you universities. You think the idea came from, from CIA and they're like, this is a very it, seductive idea to fracture the left. Via universities, which are mm. at their core often imperial institutions, man. You, you cannot trust necessarily what is taught in universities. And man, Steve Keen, uh, the guy I just mentioned who was on the Lex Friedman podcast is, is a great example of that. He talks about leading student boycotts because the this Sandstone University, Sydney University was uh, you know, sidelining certain lecturers because of, you know, more radical or, or more truth-based teachings and they were getting sacked and the students would boycott and he would lead them. Um, you know, so like, man, don't put all your faith in, institu in institutions like universities and, and the teachers that they've got there, that they can be gotten to, man. Everyone has a, has a price. Here's my theory Go on, on the uh, rise of woke culture. Uh, I think that it is the result of uh, young people being spiritually bereft. So throughout history, it was usually the religious institutions mm -hmm. that controlled the beliefs of people. And even in, in the United States, it was up until pretty recently, um, Christianity and that story controlled the actions of great num numbers of people. 
and I think that when millennials started to grow up, uh, the result of you know, the Catholic Church being kind of unveiled, a lot of these stories were just un unbelievable. And there's, I think that came along with this idea and this this feeling that a lot of young people had that they were powerless and that they didn't matter. And that's a really scary place to sit psychologically. You don't have a, something to, to spiritually hang your hat on. Mm. You don't feel powerful. And they then attached a kind of religious fervor, which is woke culture, mm -hmm. to secular issues. So that is what you get when, you know, if you want to talk about a really complex subject like race or racism and having a different opinion and and being shut down by that person shut down and, or, and we're going to cancel you that reeks of religious it, and dogmatic ideology mm. so i think that it's people placing their spirituality a, a kind of spiritual barren landscape into um secular issues yeah, well said, and I have heard that theory. And yeah, I mean, look, it, it's probably, it's probably the more realistic. But I think, man, there's been some incredible sleight of hand that's occurred in in left wing politics, and I, I cannot believe that the microphone has been passed to these like shrieking blue haired fucking vegans uh, who, who you know go around calling people uh, privileged because they have white skin. It's like, dude, like, have you? been to scotland or england or ireland there is fucking hundreds of thousands of people living in housing projects who are all white they're, they're like straddling poverty have you ever been to a factory have you ever worked in a factory like or have you ever been a bricklayer on a cold morning in fucking the north of england like do you un like have you ever tested your academic theory on these people have you ever gone to a building site uh, where some guys, you know, maybe in Australia or America, he's fucking sweating bricks, mixing cement. And have you ever gone, hey, buddy, like, you're privileged, man, because you've got white skin. Like, test your academic theories in the real world before you start spraying them everywhere. Well, I, I think that you also always need to be persuasive. And woke stories are not persuasive. So, so it's not to say that racism doesn't exist. I mean, if, if you look at, if you look purely at, the economics between black and white people in America, it's, it's stark. Um, the, the household income between the average white person and average black person is stark. And you're like, okay, this is a big problem here, but is the best way to tackle it, to call every white person that makes a faux pas a racist and get them fired. That's not a very persuasive way to call people into your movement. And if you look at one of Martin Luther King's great geniuses was the framing of the civil rights movement was very much one of a call in culture. So he would say things like, we are all brothers and sisters of God, and some of our brothers and sisters are not being treated with the same dignity mm -hmm. as others. It, you had a whole movement that was making abjectly racist people want to listen and want to get involved and be part of the music, be part of the art. And it became something that was irresistible and made 
and was responsible for a lot of the progress that we've seen over the last 60 years. And it's because that message was so persuasive. And he knew that. That guy was a fucking smart dude. Well, he was channeling God, man, literally. Like, you know, he would, I'm sure he prayed, which is a lot, which is essentially meditation. You know, if you want to do breath work and meditate and pray, you, you channel the Buddha nature, you channel the Christ consciousness. What comes spewing out of your mouth is like a direct line to, I don't know what it is, man, the source, God, the fucking, like just the pure truth. Uh, it's like something else is acting through you. It's, it's a beautiful thing, but we've lost touch with these, these structures, these daily rituals and practices. Right, like now if you want to be part of that woke, woke movement, which is just fracturing day by day, What's the what's the benefit? Like, if I want to toe the line with you, like when I get to sit with you, like this doesn't this isn't a fun, exciting movement. So I, I think that to anyone listening who wants to be persuasive and and change hearts and minds of people, think about Martin Luther King's strategy of drawing these big circles and drawing and and bringing people in and knowing that you're going to have a lot of imperfect allies, and that's what it takes to make real change happen. Mm, solidarity, working class solidarity. Uh, it's an old school concept of the left. It's been forgotten. We got to bring it back. I guess the other thing we're up against, man, and this is the, when I think about this is, this is when I think like, fuck, maybe the only way out is just to sharpen the guillotines. <laughs> <laughs> like think about it. I've had a couple mates work on super yachts in the Mediterranean as um, mechanics and, and as captains even. And, you know, I'm talking like, Guys who they've been working for like uh, you know tabloid owners in Britain and shit like that, like some of the the most influential people in the Western world, and um, and, and like they, they've been on boats that have been filled with Russian oligarchs and, and shit like that. And uh, what I've learned is that at the pointiest pointy end of wealth and power on this planet, what the people are doing what those people with all the, the money and power, what they're doing, it boils down to high-class prostitutes and fucking bowls of cocaine. They're snorting themselves stupid and they're fucking the hottest chicks money can buy. Uh, and when that loses its luster, they go and they fuck kids like Jeffrey Epstein and whoever was hanging out on that island. These people are fucking reptiles, dude. And uh, when you don't practice any kind of spiritual practice any service over self man it's a miserable existence and the only way you can feel anything is through like uppers like like cocaine uppers it's through power and it's through fucking and these people this is what they do and these are the the, the heaviest hitters on the planet because they don't they've just worshipped materialism and consumerism their their entire existences they don't know any different. They're kind of too far down the track to turn back and they're just nihilistic. They're like, well, I'm going to be fine. Fuck, like my family's going to be fine and I'm going to get to fuck like 21-year-old like Eastern European chicks for the rest of my days before I, you know, die on the toilet of a cocaine fucking heart attack. <laughs> Got to get these guys on breath work. Yeah, it's literally, dude. Seriously, man. That's, that's where it's gotten to and, and, and that's where we're at, funnily enough. And it's coming from the grassroots and it's going up. Just like the Balinese do it with their karma and you know, that, that's a way of taking back control, treating people kind. Every person in the society treats people kind and it's this compounding force of goodness that goes up 
And that's the only place change is going to come from. It's yeah. going to come from the bottom and it's going to go up because it ain't coming from the top going down, sadly. I got a, uh, I got a plug before we, before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. So while I was out, uh, I think that we've gone pretty uh, up into the 10,000 foot view of uh, problems with the world. And I want to, I want to ground it down so that people don't <laughs> drive off the fucking road right now. I think it's all over. <laughs> um, I'm not leaving them with reptiles, bro. I refuse, <laughs> I refuse to have my parting thought on the podcast. Be one of fucking kids and reptiles. Um, the lizard brain, not the lizard brain. So uh, in Bali, um, and, and in Southeast Asia, um, number one cause of death among children is drowning. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know this, but um, kids in Bali dr- uh, drown at astounding rates, um, falling into r- rivers. Um, big issue that I had no idea about before coming over here, but was turned on to this local organization called Swimdo. Most people in the surf world don't know about this organization. They've, they've been around just the, la- the past few years. They're based right at the back of Karamas, which most people will know is an epic surf spot. And they've um, taught thousands of young Indo kids this survival swimming backstroke. Amazing. That can save their life if they fall into a river. Um, and I'm writing a story on Swimdo. Uh, and they are looking for volunteers who could be swim instructors. So on your next trip to Bali, if you want to give back and uh, do some work teaching um, local kids how to swim, the organization's growing, um, and they're doing classes in Java. They've done a class in Borneo, and uh, it's just an awesome local organization. Um, and you know, as they say, don't try and change the world, just try and change your block. So hundred percent. Next time on your your surf trip, look up Swimdo, send them an email, and um, send them some money or or some skills, and they'd be grateful. It's the future of surf travel, man. On the flat days, go and do some shit for the community. Go and chip in. Go and rip in. Fucking love that. Great way to end the pod, man. It's been a journey. Get on you, Carl. You're a fucking a, legend, man. I, I really enjoy it, man. You're the man. <laughs> love you, brother. You.